0: or if anything, we learned that manufacturing in Ontario is not a monolithic endeavor. We have, you know, on the first episode of the podcast, there's automation folks, there are auto parts folks, and there's folks that are making craft beer, and this is all part of
1: manufacturing, and we also had... You're listening to Making It in Ontario, the official podcast of the Trillium Network for Advanced Manufacturing. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the first episode of the second season of Making It in Ontario, the official podcast of the Trillium Network for Advanced Manufacturing. I'm your host, Nick Persichilli. And in today's episode, Brandon and I sit down in his basement to reflect on the lessons and insights gained from the first season of the podcast, because they were numerous. As I've mentioned before, I have not ever worked in manufacturing. My professional background is corporate communications. My education on the depth Of importance of manufacturing has only really started well with this podcast in fact even dr. Sweeney admits in this episode he's learned a few things too however I would argue that the most important lesson learned so far is that many of the old norms won't work moving forward at the risk of sounding like a broken record we need a new normal we need a better normal moving forward we're going to apply all of our efforts to informing and helping design that new normal using data. And I don't mean the lieutenant commander. Brendan recently put out a quarterly video update going into more detail about exactly what we're doing. Check it out if you haven't already seen it. We'll post a link to it in the podcast blog post. Anyway, here's me and Brendan and his beagle discussing how we can keep on making it in Ontario. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the season one recap of Making it in Ontario. Dr. Brendan Sweeney and I are here, and we are chatting about the lessons we've learned. The surprises, things we weren't expecting, things we were expecting. Brendan is uh, coming along nicely with his microphone discipline. So, Brendan, I'm going to just... Let's that's, that's blue sky this. What are your thoughts? I thought it was fascinating
0: just to get so many different perspectives, and we learned... Or if anything, we learned that manufacturing in Ontario is not a monolithic endeavor. Uh, We have, you know, on the first episode of the podcast, there's automation folks, there are auto parts folks, and there's folks that are making craft beer. And this is all part of manufacturing, and we also had, you know, some other great guests from the very broad and diverse ecosystem of um, organizations that support manufacturing um, but that are not necessarily manufacturers themselves and I guess we include ourselves in that ecosystem um, and we in, in in the case of season one uh, would also include organizations like NGEN uh, like Reshoring Canada um, that are just doing uh, doing some great work and so We learned that it's important not to treat manufacturing as, again, a a monolithic endeavor. That said, I think, Nick, you're the first to point out um, that as we moved through our conversations with uh, small family-owned automation companies to craft brewers, there were some really interesting commonalities, common experiences, sometimes those common experiences manifested as common challenges. Um, And if that's the case, we've learned uh, that there are some similarities uh, across manufacturing, regardless of industry, and that there are some differences too. And the more we unpack that, I think the closer we get to being able to come up with solutions policy oriented or otherwise, but solutions to these challenges or um, ways to support the good things, the great things that manufacturers are already doing.
1: So, Brendan, as you know, um, I'm not a, you know, I'm a comms guy. My my academic career ended with my B.A. in political science and then I got a corporate communication. I'm learning a lot of this as we go. Yeah. So I think we all are, though. Yeah, I think and we all are.
0: I think, the, I think even the manufacturers themselves are learning it as they go. Um, they just might have a
1: different foundation on yeah. which they're learning than we do. But Tell me about this whole discussion of chasing scale, because that, that whole thing of, I understand it's more efficient, however one wants to define that, but t- tell me about the chasing scale.
0: Sure. Um, I, I think that a, for many reasons, scale is desirable. And and if you think about the auto industry, if you think about large continuous process industries, uh, whether it's pulp and paper manufacturing, steel making, um, brewing pilsners, brewing brewing, uh, some of the kind of major the business models of the major internationally owned breweries, when you achieve economies of scale, uh, a lot of other good things can happen. You can invest in uh, production equipment. And, and production technologies and you can invest in, in automation and robotics if those are applicable to your industry your profit margins can be you know while the uh, when you when you do that, and you are making 200,000 of something, or in some cases, I mean, this is this wasn't part of the podcast, but we talked about a plastic bottle manufacturer that was doing in the billions of units in a 200 person factory in Peel region. And you can afford certain things when you're operating at scale. And oftentimes that means um, you can, again, afford to invest and afford to pay people well. And in many ways, especially in an in integrated North American economy, or supply chain doing one thing and focusing on it has been desirable cars is cars and car parts is probably the best example of chasing scale but at the same time it scale can become a bit of a commodity and when you know you're using similar and easily and similar and replicable processes to achieve scale what happens when your competitors can do the same thing I think this is very much a Canadian and a Midwest US story where competitors in the Southern United States and Mexico and elsewhere, and certainly in, in uh, several Asian and European countries, they could do scale. And even if we did it a bit better, they could just do it. And I won't use the term inexpensive or cost efficient, they could do it cheap. Right. Maybe in the 1990s when we, when, we were competing with the southern united states where okay we're paying people 20 bucks an hour they're paying people 15 now we're in a situation where in mexico they're paying people a dollar 50 and we're paying 25 30 so scale is great when we can achieve it uh, but it leaves you vulnerable to some degree and so if we're always chasing scale we just have to be aware that when that scale can be replicated somewhere that's just you know, a very different society and economy than uh, an affluent one like Canada or the United States or Germany, you've either got to really work on protecting it or on really realizing another competitive advantage or more competitive, more advantages than just the ability to do scale in an integrated continental or global marketplace.
1: So in my conversation, oh, by the way, uh, for those of you listening, I have an upcoming episode with Mr. Paul Madden. Oh, that's going to be good. That's going to be a that's great episode. Be really good. He planted a few seeds in my brain after that conversation, one of which I'm going to give you a little spoiler right okay, now. Who's Paul Madden though? Paul Madden. Oh, of course. The sorry. shoes? No. <laughs> you know how many times I almost say? Yeah. Oh, no, no. So not, yeah. Yeah. No. The, sh- he, the football guy? Not, no, not. Okay. Wrong Madden again. Okay. No, this okay. is our our board member. Our, oh, our, our, yeah, I know, yeah. I, know, I know that. Good guy. Good guy. Yeah, he's, he's a yeah, very so good guy. Former 3M executive. I, I picked his brain, and uh, it, it's going to be a great episode. And on the discussion of scale and chasing scale, I, I asked him, you know, do you think we should be chasing scale or should we be chasing not scale? And he said, he, did, he answered my question with a question, and he said, well, who are our customers? Yeah. The that. United
0: States, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So the United States. I mean, they've States. been our largest customer. They still are.
1: So... He said, who are our customers? Now, I'm going to get a little auto geeky here and just kind of nerd out a little bit here. If you think about traditionally speaking, let's go back 20 years. Yeah. And you had uh, a really fine automobile. you, And of course, it would have power steering. Historically, power steering is a hydraulic system actuated with oil pressure. Mm-hmm. And the pump, the power steering pump is comprised of a bunch of tiny little intricate, perfectly machined mm-hmm. little bits of metal. The level of precision needed to make a hydraulic power steering pump is, is just, it's incredible. And, and Canadians are good at it. Yep. We're yep. very and, good. Um,
0: and several kilometers from where we're sitting here in Dundas, Ontario, I mean, I guess we'll have to go up to Ancaster, but they are making seven or 800 people making those types of pumps or similar.
1: Exactly. Yeah, so, and, and the intricacy that's needed, all of that, all of that. Yep. But now here's the thing. Power steering is now going electric. Mm-hmm. All of those that that power steering pump, one power steering pump, needed a lot of intricate machining. And now that unit, the function of the power steering is still there. We Mm -hmm. still need that function, but we don't need that pump. Mm -hmm. So the question going back to Mister Madden's question: Who are our customers? Because I don't think anyone's going to be needing to build the next generation of power steering pump. And so I guess, and I I don't have an answer for this yet. I'm 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 just going to throw it out to you: Do we have like, who are our customers? Who should they be? Well, who are our customers?
0: Um, our number one customer for most of the things we manufacture historically has been the United States and is the United States. And okay. I mean, if you think about 85% of the cars we make and uh, of our parts exports, like nine, 89% go to the United States. So, so the, I think diversifying our customer base in geographic terms is great. But we're a long ways away moving away from the United States. Uh, they're there. They've been a, you know, um, despite you know a bit of a rocky relationship with their past administration for the, since 2016, mm-hmm. um, they're an important part of whatever we do. And now there are some uh, there's some kind of commodity processing that uh, we have other customers and maybe that's um you know we we process livestock meat and send it to um to other to europe and asia there would be resources natural resources that we extract and process that we ship overseas and then another you know and and there's some industries that are less exposed to trade than others because we make the things to consume here um, particularly around foodstuffs. So a lot of our a lot of our food processing uh capacity is consumed locally, sometimes hyper locally. Um, and if you think about large commercial bakeries, who are the customers? Like you and I today, potentially, if we are going to eat some bread. If we're going to eat bread today, it probably came from within a one hour radius of your your house in Etobicoke or mine in so
1: so so going back to the scale discussion yeah because w- when i first started here one of the first discussions that i came into contact with was your discussion about how the manufacturing sector is a tax base now the manufacturing sector such as it was leading up to let's say the manufacturing sector 20 years ago let's say yeah was built on scale uh lar- yes largely lar- scale. largely
0: on scale and and there's a bit of um this doesn't mean that there aren't smaller or customized manufacturers throughout the supply chain, but when you really break it down, there are a number of very large manufacturers that are part of our ecosystem that, that that account for a large proportion of employment and output. I would think that, I mean, this is back in the napkin stuff, but I would think that Magna alone, Magna alone accounts for about 3% of all manufacturing employment in Ontario, hmm. uh, Linamar alone accounts for about two percent. You add in Toyota, and now, yeah, the Toyota there's all um, Toyota, another two percent. Um, Stellantis, aka FCA, aka Chrysler, that's another two percent right there. I'm rounding up or down here, uh, sure. and and uh, ArcelorMittal Middle another two percent. So right there, you know, this is just how many was that five companies five companies that we've named and we that those five companies account for over 10 percent of manufacturing um, and they all do it at scale huh. um, and that that might have changed a little bit over the past uh, 20 years um, but we still have a very scale oriented manufacturing ecosystem now i think and i think you and paul might end up wrestling with this question a bit Is that good? Is that what we want? Or do we want something else? And it's hard to confidently answer those questions without asking another whole handful of questions. Um, And maybe the answer is we want both. I think it's going to be hard to have, I think in in any one facility or something, it's going to be hard to have both at the same time um, or to do both at the same time. But could we have a part of our ecosystem that is oriented towards producing things at scale, and a part that is more customized, um, bespoke. I think you, yeah, the term bespoke sounds nice, or you know, lower volume, higher margins. Yeah, so.
1: filling in the cracks. A lot of people f- use that term, filling in the cracks, which I, I like bespoke. I like, I like bespoke, it better too. So, yeah, because yeah, filling yeah. in the cracks just sounds like we're just kind of being treated like putty. Yeah, and I just well, so speaking of scale and speaking of the internal combustion engine and its various intricate components, yeah. now, well, I was going to say we're moving away from the internal combustion engine to an electric drive, but is that the case? Are we moving that way? Because I mean... Yes, th- yes, yes. But I mean, I, I, At I think... At what
0: speed? Slower than many of the reports would have you believe. We tried this 10 years ago and it didn't, it didn't work. And there was... Um, you know or pr- 10 15 years ago 15 years ago okay yeah green uh, green technology let's uh, let's do this then we had a recession and then we moved back to buying pickup trucks and SUVs primarily and we actually you know the funny thing is um, over the past 10 years while all this environmental stuff kind of emerges we started buying more pickup trucks and SUVs As a consumer base in Canada And in the United States So this isn't just some like Ontario phenomenon And now I think You know they're really um, I think a lot of the You know as the technology evolves And some of the automakers are getting wiser And they're like oh can we Okay so people want Pickup trucks and SUVs right Yep Okay so they're thinking about their consumers right What do they want They want pickup trucks and SUVs Okay well but, but this shift is like we're transitioning towards like electric, okay, cool, can we do both yeah and 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 so we're getting to a point where I think, okay like that's that's the solution, like electric f one fifties uh electric mustangs and uh being able to deploy the technology as such, so yes, are we moving that way uh absolutely, will we you know, is the technology evolving? Sure, absolutely. And for, I mean, for anyone who's driven a Tesla, like it's just—it's not fair. It's not—it's not fair to other cars. Um, and, yeah. And 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 I—I I mean, my thought, you know, I don't, so what what's a what's a Tesla Model S cost Do you? Like one hundred and ten thousand dollars?
1: Around there, yeah. Yeah.
0: If if you were to give engineers at one of the scalable automotive manufacturers let's just say Toyota or Ford or Volkswagen. If you were to say, yeah, yeah, just design like a design, you got to come up with like a super cool electric car, all the bells and whistles, um, go. And they said, oh, okay, well, this is going to be tricky. Oh, but the price tag is $110,000. Oh, oh, okay. Well, oh, that, yeah, cha- sure, that no changes problem. things. Yeah, we can do that. Um, yeah. No, nah, and so I think I think you will see... Yeah, you will see some some pretty in some incremental improvements in technology over the next couple years. The I think there might be I think dem, like demand might outpace production for these vehicles and there's all, You think so? Well, I mean it's just that you got to start, you know, th- there's going to be a two or three year period where some of these two three year four, we're going to see this in in Ontario where you got to retool the plant. And you gotta build out some new supply chains and that takes time. And so it might be but but you'll still see, okay, you know, we'll go from what are we at now? Two percent of the fleet, three percent of the fleet is electric?
1: Around there, yeah. Yep. And, I thought it was and, one. Yeah, well
0: I think it used to be one and now I think it's closer to two.
1: Yeah, right? Yeah. And and
0: this is gonna happen and there's there's two sides of the ledger here because there's gonna be cars most of the, the majority of the cars that come off the road are gonna be I C E.
1: Right.
0: So so that that'll that'll um I don't know, that'll be really interesting to watch out for. And then all of a sudden, it'll be 5%. Then all of a sudden, it'll be 10%. But just when do we hit, you know, will it be 1% a year for the next few years? And then will we hit something like, okay, all these new plants are online. Some of the supply chain challenges have been addressed, whether it's uh, critical minerals like lithium, whether it's power electronics and semiconductors. And so, yeah, I don't know, will it be 2025 or 2026 that you just see this jump? Okay, we're doing this now, right? We're not in the process of trying to do this. We're doing it. And, uh, yeah, so that will be that will be uh, super exciting, I think. But, you know, I think that, you know, 2035 in Canada, it's ambitious to, to be all, you know, it, so they're not saying that the whole fleet will be electric, but they're saying all new vehicle sales will be electric. It's a very ambitious target and what good is a target if it's not ambitious and will we achieve it i don't know ask me again in 2034 uh you know yeah. if i can definitively say that and uh, uh but because just so much has to happen but yeah hey, if if you don't set a target it's probably not going to happen naturally yeah. so yeah it's cool it's, it's it's really exciting it's really exciting so
1: so speaking of products of the future, yeah. let's talk about the manufacturing workforce of the future. Yeah. Oh. So we've uh yeah. we've uncovered a fair bit of uh Yeah. Yeah. And Yeah.
0: Yeah, I mean and I'll, I'll go on record now based on what I know and I think it's a bunch that I I believe that you know, uh, the electrification of the automotive industry, super exciting. Uh Industry 4.0, advanced robotics, advanced automation, super exciting. Yep, 100%. Full stop. Um, oh, uh, you know, our, our, uh, our life sciences manufacturing industry, whether it's pharmaceuticals or medical devices, also exciting. I, I, I think we want to pay attention to that. Uh, but uh, again, on record today, and probably it'll be hard getting me off this for a little bit, but I think that the workforce in Ontario and particularly in southern Ontario Uh, The workforce, skills, talent, human resources, um, although I like to think of humans like you, Nick, as more than just a resource. But anyway, um, (laughs) thank you, sir. Yeah, yeah, you're welcome. You're (laughs) welcome. So uh, the uh, workforce broadly conceived is going to be for manufacturers in Ontario and in the economy generally getting people to work the competition for talent and the competition for employees, people, generally, uh, will consume much of our much of our energy, much of our discussions. We'll focus on this for the better part of the decade, and there's a few reasons for that. purely for demographics, for companies that are still, I don't like the term millennials. I think it. Uh, I don't like the term. Gen X or Gen Y, I think it's too—it's um, too easy to label huge chunks of the population as this or as that, and when they're actually quite diverse. But anyway, uh, let's just let's be objective about it. There's a lot of people uh, as a proportion of our population right now between the ages of 50 and 59. And yeah, people are working longer. People don't work forever, nor nor do we want to work forever and you don't remember there was a freedom 55 it's like hey let's figure out how we can retire it was like an old financial kind of is that what that was Yeah, and it was like oh so you can retire when you're 55 and like oh "Oh, (laughs) really like and now just like the idea of retiring when you're 55 is just uh, almost it's uh, absurd unless you're in a couple it is a professions yeah where you then would just go back and do something else after that right after maybe maybe it's military or policing where you do you are pensionable after 25 or 30 years so if you got in when you're 25 you might get out when you're 55 but you might not want to or you might get out and do something yeah, yeah you, you, your retirement is just moving on to another occupation or career um anyway so there's this big chunk of the workforce and the population generally that are gonna they're not getting younger they just by there's no there's no possible way until we invent time machines which we haven't yet um that that chunk of the population can get younger there's another big chunk of the population between the ages of 20 and 29 and 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 that's a little heavy on the 25 to 29 Uh, and they're going to be in five years the majority of that chunk of the population will be in their 30s um, there are not. Um, I am. Jeez, am I forty-one or forty-two?
1: I thought you were forty-one. Yeah, I know
0: uh, Let's go with forty-one. I'll okay, like yeah. better than forty-two. I guess. But I am going on forty-two, and you are. 40. I am forty-one. 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 So, um, we are kind of the median age now, uh, but relative to the rest of the population, there's not
1: a lot of forty-one-year-olds out there. So is this that demographic cliff you're talking about? Well, this
0: is this is this is this kind of uh kind of seemingly forgotten about kind of this was an old we we were an older demographic cliff but it were not a lot of people born in 79 80 81 um so when there's going to be there's going to be when 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 a lot of the folks who retire in five or ten years they they will not they won't be a steady state of people from their 30s and 40s going into their 50s and 60s in the workforce if that makes sense Mm. um then there'll be a lot of people who are in their 20s now who I'm not sure if they've been I don't I don't know if as a society we have successfully integrated them into the workforce as we could have and I know objectively manufacturers have not they just don't manufacture to not have a lot of people uh nominally or proportionally in their 20s working for them right now um if you go back to my whole little dealie on millennials um like if you're still trying to figure out how to hire and engage millennials like you missed that boat but like you and I are millennials kind of on the very you might be and I might not be I might have missed it by a year and you might have got in there by a year or something I'm technically a zennial okay yeah um, <laughs> and uh, yeah so engaging those persons who came uh, a number of persons who came of age, who are in their 20s now uh, who came of age during a really weird time COVID all that right you finish university you're about you finish college you finish trade school you're about to go do something and then just like just getting covid engaging them in a uh, engaging them in all manners of employment will be really important i think it's also important to recognize too that just um materially we're really starting to kind of blow this wide open materially person not not just people in their 20s but materially people under the age of 45 are much worse off in relative terms than people above the age of forty five and wealth is increasingly concentrated in older generations right now and that 's including uh, I mean the housing the housing price question is just off the charts right now yeah the proportion of income earned by persons over the age of forty five has never been so high and so on the flip side is the proportion of income of total income of every dollar that everyone 's paid in Ontario the proportion that person's under the age of 45 who are working, so I'm not counting people who are not working here, but the proportion of income that they earn has never been lower. This is, so, I mean, just sorting some of this out, and maybe there will just be this natural generational transfer of wealth, income, earnings, et cetera. But then what happens after the people in their 20s, if you look at teenagers today, this isn't going to be my rant about let's talk about teenagers today. The only thing I'm going to say is there's not many of them. In southern Ontario, when we think about manufacturing, we're thinking about an industry that uh, is located in one of the most affluent parts of the world and a great, I, I mean, a great part of the world to live in, in my opinion. Agreed. Um, and, uh, and but one of the things that makes it so great is because the economy is so diverse, there's so many opportunities. And so there's opportunities in um, uh, finance, government, education, healthcare, uh, uh, any, uh, software, you name it. And manufacturing, and of course manufacturing, uh, construction, tons of stuff, and absolutely tons of stuff, and, cons- and just so many really cool opportunities. And I think manufacturers are—they have a different experience in Southern Ontario than in the U.S. Midwest, where they are. You know, the al- in Michigan, they're the alpha employers. General Motors and Ford are alpha employers in Michigan. That doesn't mean they're not very good employers in Southern Ontario, but they're competing with a number of other. Industries. And yeah, I mean, just the thing that uh, manufacturing is absolutely critical to the economies of uh, the GTA, or the GTHA, because we're in Hamilton, so we call it the GTHA, or let's just say the Golden Horseshoe.
1: That sounds a lot more inclusive. Yeah, the Golden Horseshoe,
0: there we go. But finance, healthcare, uh, education, right? There's just so many manufacturers are competing with each other. And with a number of other uh, industries in a way that manufacturers elsewhere in North America aren't uh, when you're in Southern Ontario. And the, that, that, I mean, that should, I think that should really factor into all our thinking. So how are you going to, you know, you have a a smart young person, smart person in their early career, smart person in their mid career. How are you going to convince them? It's uh, the onus is now on manufacturers to convince that person to work in manufacturing Not the other way around. This is not, it's not 1983. There's not lineups down the road for, you know, there's not 100 jobs at a factory and 10,000 people apply. There's 100 jobs at a factory and 140 people apply. This now, this is not a manufacturing-only challenge, right? This is the same, I I think, for a number of industries. uh, (laughs) I mean, we're going to see, I think we're going to, where, you know, the other place where we'll really see this is in healthcare and particularly in nursing. And, yeah, so how are we going to efficiently and effectively bring thousands upon thousands of people uh, from whatever they're doing now into employment and, in our cases, into employment in manufacturing? Um, so how are we going to communicate those opportunities? How are we going to... I, I mean, one of the... Uh, how are we going to identify the types of... Um, the skills uh, that help equip people to do that. And then, how, uh, I mean, also again, uh, at some point in time, when the labor market's so tight, when competition for talent is so high, how are manufacturers really going to convince people that they should work for them uh, instead of finance, government? healthcare education construction you name it the arts the arts software so there's just yeah th- this is going to this is going to consume and should consume a lot of our time mm-hmm. um so yeah and, and especially after a year where a lot of people didn't work that much because of the pan or I, I don't want this to sound snarky but yeah people worked less during the pandemic uh if they were not kind of gainfully full-time employed going into the pandemic so right. a lot of people show, got you know who wanted to keep working could not because yeah. it was a pandemic
1: so so on the topic of workforce diversity and getting more people getting more young people uh we also kind of put out a little bit of a report on uh, gender diversification in the workforce
0: yeah well i mean any any diverse when it comes to manufacturing
1: whether it's uh
0: gender diversification particularly hiring more women engaging more women recruiting retaining engaging etc more women in any and all positions including and especially leadership positions uh, whether it's engaging persons from kind of historically excluded communities whether it's engaging younger persons this is going to be absolutely critical for manufacturers the manufacturing workforce right now, no surprise to anyone, is typically older than the average. The, the 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 not the average, but the median age I think is like us, 41 give or take. Um, and the manufacturing workforce is typically older and typically male. So, if you think younger women historically historically excluded demographics, that's it's it's not it's not it's not. Oh, maybe we should. It's you have to. You must. You must. Or you're you're not going to have a lot of people to work for you, if you want new and innovative ways of doing things. Whether that's making things, whether that's reaching markets, um, whether that's organizing people. Well, get a diverse. You know, the, the the more diverse your workforce is, the more you might achieve that. And you know, I think especially with the the younger persons, we talk and talk and talk about how manufactured we want to get young people in the workforce but we don't understand who young people are yeah right yeah so i mean we are we are taking a very deep dive into the data we've i mean we've uncovered that objectively if you are 30 years old today you are materially less well off than someone who's 30 year old 10 years ago 15 years ago 30 years ago that's just just the way and and there's a whole host of reasons behind this right it's not just and there's not and it's like I don't want to sound like there's blame going anywhere there's a whole host of reasons behind this Um, and we're going to kind of uncover some of those reasons figure out what it actually means figure out what we can do about it and I also you know think that it's not just about um, oh let's let's engage a chunk of the you know let's engage a particular demographic as you know in in entry-level employees no I think this has to whether it's yeah, this uh, across all occupations, including leadership occupations, and I think including ownership, right, that we 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 would stand to benefit from much more diversity of everybody across manufacturing decision makers um, to very early career kind of entry level positions.
1: So, so I'm going to go back to speaking of diversification of the workforce uh i want to speak specifically about women in the workforce because we did an episode um and shannon came with me at Mm -hmm. Tronic. Mm -hmm. now aside from all of the detail we also talked about what it was like for a company working in covid and all those challenges um the thing that really got to me was the discussion around simi's experience simi of course being the daughter of kim tiara and um If you want more women in the workforce, they need to feel comfortable. And if you want more anyone in your workforce
0: in your uh, you need them, they need to to feel comfortable. comfortable. And I think I think I think I think we do want to make certain that uh, if there are things that make whether it's women, whether it's younger people, whether it's persons from historically excluded groups, there are things that make them uncomfortable. Like, we need to understand what those are and how we can change. Change. There's yeah. there's room for change, and I, um. So especially, I think, in younger generations, early career folks, and I'm talking people in their twenties, people in their thirties, even even people in their forties. Their world is more diverse because the world got more diverse, and generally, people that people have a talented people have an expectation that their workplace is going to be no different than the world that they're familiar with. And if they're familiar with a world that is diverse and inclusive, and they go to a workplace or they go to work in an organization that is less diverse and inclusive, they may elect not to stay at that workplace for very long they might go, they might gravitate towards somewhere that is diverse and inclusive, that does reflect their values of diversity and inclusion. And if an organization, regardless of industry, does not offer that, they may find that they have some challenges hiring people and retaining people. The flip side of that is if you can offer that, if you do offer that, you may find that you're going to have success there, and I think that's when you know we featured some of these companies in that report that was their experience when they offered a diverse and inclusive environment, they had an easier time hiring people uh, they also paid well, so that was a that was a that was a bit of a thing
1: yeah know. for those of you wondering that's Brendan's dog in case anyone was wondering whether or not we're actually at his house oh yeah, we are we're just chilling in his basement yep. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but, uh, so on the topic, yeah. one of the things that got to me about the Ace Tronic podcast was the discussion. What was the, it, it was, it was Simmy's experiences and also the realization that in order to make progress on this, it's a cultural move that needs to take place. It's not a legislative move. It's not a, a regulatory issue. This is a cultural problem. And I think, I think you, I think we can all agree that moving the needle on culture is one of the hardest things to do. Yeah,
0: yeah, it's, uh, it's, in, it's incredibly difficult. And then when, I mean, when we did speak with manufacturers who had moved the needle, who had done well, I mean, it, it didn't happen overnight. It was very intentional. And I think that part of it, I mean, is understanding that, okay, you're going to have to change. Okay, so that's one. And two, you're going to have to do stuff. You're going to have to commit resources to this. You're going to have to commit time and energy And so being able to do that, but understanding that, you know, there are, when successfully done, there are benefits to this. There are benefits to individual people. There are benefits to communities. There are benefits to society. And there's certainly benefits to a manufacturer who uh, has a culture that is innovative and inclusive and that gives them a leg up over their competitors.
1: Well, I know I've learned a lot since I've started here. I absolutely yeah, yeah and absolutely. I've I've learned a lot about note taking. Yeah,
0: note taking. Yep, lots it, on notes.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, I've got my answer to this, but I want to know what you think. What oh, yeah. What are you looking forward to?
0: What am I looking forward to? <sighs> Jeez, a lot. I mean, again, uh, the 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 workforce thing. When when we're when we're scheduled to be working on that kind of stuff, I get up and go. Um, I really, really, really like. Digging into that just because it it just it matters so much the it matters so much to so many people and to our economy and and to you know if if this is somewhere where if you know some of our partners agree whether that's the the province whether that's i said um, whether that's any number of associations or uh, economic development organizations or other nonprofits like that, or whether it's manufacturers themselves, um, if they agree that this is something that we can help them with, we'd love to help them with. And I think there's some real kind of tangible benefits to lots of people yeah. and communities and companies. So that that's super exciting. Um, I am excited, and you know this is happening slowly, or I'm looking forward to starting to see some people again. We have so many good partners. And uh I think we miss them, and I hope they miss us, but just actually getting out and and yeah will will we be doing all of our work in the office and face to face moving forward? I don't know, I think there's still lots of room for remote work, but I'd like to go see some people as an extrovert. oh, yeah, I like to see people and uh and i and I get a lot out of it, and um it's great to build those relationships uh also great to get back into see. Factories in action. Maybe yeah. we're a few months off. Maybe we're a few months off that, but it's just so fascinating going in and actually seeing things get yeah. made. Um, of course, we want to do it safely, and so maybe Absolutely. maybe it's September that we really start having those conversations again. And yeah, again, as a, as an extrovert, I am <laughs> just whether it's I, I, I like talking to people and learning, and we learn so much every day. So yes, yeah, so I am excited to you know i'm excited for season two of the podcast mm, yes um and uh i am yeah so generally all around um i think it's going to be i think for many myself included maybe yourself included covid was kind of shitty at points yeah it was or really shit like and and it was not uh, it was not how um i would prefer to live my personal life nor the professional life Um, I will reserve comment on my personal life (laughs) for what I'm looking forward to. Summer, definitely. Right. So I guess I won't reserve comment. There you go. Seeing my friends and family again. Um, But professionally, yeah, going and just seeing and making those connections and learning from and about. All of the great partners, all of the people that we're tangled up with in this, and yeah, you know, if we can avoid that seven thirty February go train out of Burlington Station, that's that's fine. If we got another oh, way to yeah, if we got another way to figure that one out, and, um, but uh, yeah, I'm uh, and, and and just I, I like traveling around the province, around the country, and uh, maybe even internationally hmm. when the time comes. Going out, seeing the people, seeing the places,
1: and learning. So, hmm. well, that kind of makes what I was going to say seem kind of trivial. Now. Well, I don't know. What do you? <laughs> maybe not though. Let's I, see. I, I'm getting. About? So. I, I'm. I, I like what I've learned so far working at Trillium, and I'm. I'm looking forward to seeing what happens when we unlock certain things, like okay. when we finally okay. figure out. Yeah. I have no, I don't know of any other region, and this is thanks to you, Brendan, telling mm-hmm. telling us about this that can manufacture to the quality that Ontario does. Like yeah. we can make anything here yeah. and quality. Yeah. Not a problem. We can, you want it within a micron. Sure. Not a problem. We can do all of that. I want to see us decide what do we want to build next? Yep. Yeah. That's- we've, you know, we've built cars, we've built that, uh, you know, that that's, that's fantastic. We've built airplanes for other, co- yep. That's happening too. But like, I think we've got the skill and the technology mm-hmm. and more importantly i think we have the drive in the yeah. in within society to build whatever we want and i'm going to reserve judgment on where mm-hmm. i think we should be going next mm-hmm. because that supply chain has yet to be established but i think it will be coming up and i think you know what i'm talking about you do don't you
0: well if it's a space <laughs> industry thing, then hey no, no no i mean hey uh, um Get in, yes. on, get in on the ground floor.
1: That Quite that, literally, eh? That's so, exactly what yeah. I'm thinking. Because, like, think about it. What other industry? And I know, Brennan, I'm sure you're probably thinking right now a million things to say of why I'm wrong. And that's fine. You're, no, I'm
0: thinking about the different manufacturers in Ontario that contribute, that already contribute to the space economy, MDA, you know, but th- we make things that go on satellites. There's, there's, a, there's a small what do they call it, a nano-satellite? There's a, and it's at, like, university, or is it, univ- no, it's like Spadina and Dundas, and they're occupying one floor of a building, which could have potentially been an old garment manufacturing facility, mm. and they're making satellites. They're making nano-satellites. They're very, I mean, I think they're satellites, I mean, they're about, you know, as big as, like, a basketball. But they're, they're actually, they are manufacturing them. I believe it's, like, Spadina and Dundas. And so, yes,
1: yeah, space economy,
0: super cool. Sounds super cool. And we're already doing a little bit of it. And then, of course, MDA.
1: Yes. So, yes, I, I'm. I'm. I've been fall I've been geeking out really hard. And I have no. What, what's what I'm. I have no authority to be as excited as I am mm. about the physics yeah. of the full flow staged combustion engine that is on the Starship. But I digress. Um, I would love to. St- I think we could. I think we could contribute to that motor. I really do. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll agree with you on a very general aspect <laughs> of that.
0: I think that it would be awesome to have some conversations around how Ontario fits into a global space economy and how we make things that go to space already and how we can yep. make more of them um,
1: for... Uh, you know for a lot of people's benefit yeah because i so, don't think we're going to be doing scale manufacturing for space yet are we yet yeah not, not yet. yet not yet so. so there's no point in chasing that scale yeah so. um well brennan i think uh we're rounding the corner on time okay, here uh, good I, stuff i think uh, season one was interesting it laid the foundation for me yeah. for a lot of stuff um you're probably still going to have to rein me in on a lot of things but or i think not. you're getting we'll used see. to that we'll see. We'll see. So. but anyway um thanks for having me over yeah You're
0: welcome. So enjoy a couple more of these strawberries from the yard. Oh, yeah, there's still some left. Thanks
1: for listening, everyone. Thanks for listening to Making It in Ontario. Join us next week as I sit down with Trillium Network board member and former 3M senior executive, Paul Madden, as we discuss Ontario's competitive advantage in a globally integrated manufacturing ecosystem.